should get an alert if everything worked okay. All right, everyone's good? Everyone's good to go? Yep. All right, cool. Well, my name is Michael. Uh, my preferred pronouns are he, him, and I am studying applied mathematics at UCCS. I'm Galia. I'm go by she, her. I'm a communication student here at UCCS. I'm Lauren. I um, she, her, and I am a geography major at UCCS. And so, as I said before, I will be the one conducting the interview today, and then uh, Galia and Lauren will be taking notes. So first of all, Chris, we want to thank you for being here today and sharing with us. Um, we're here for the Colorado Springs LGBTQ plus oral history project, uh, and we want to hear your story on your terms. So uh, before we begin, I want to let you know that we can skip any questions that you don't want to answer anything uh, you just don't want to talk about. More than, more than welcome, no problem. Um, and if we could begin, if you could please introduce yourself and your preferred pronouns. I'm Chris Robertson and Christopher Robertson. My pronouns are he, him, his. Okay, awesome. And then uh, where in the world are we speaking to you from today? I'm currently in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I've lived here okay. for 25 years, 24 years. Oh, wow, okay, awesome. And so uh, how would you describe your identity to the audience? I am a cis male and I'm homosexual or gay. Okay, gotcha. Okay, um, is there any specific language or terminology that you like to use for yourself that you haven't already told us about? No, that's it. Okay, all right. Um, do you have any significant others or children? I have a partner of um, 11 years and a little girl that's his who's 12. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations. Actually, awesome. she, um, she just came out to us two months ago as non-binary, so she prefers they, them. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. That's quite the experience. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll definitely uh, talk about that more if, if you'd like to when you get into it, uh, that area. Um, we want to start off maybe with some of the early life questions. Um, where were you born? I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1964. Okay. And did you grow up in Louisiana? Yeah, I was there until I was 33 and then moved here to Colorado Springs. Gotcha. Okay. And so um, what was school like for you growing up in Louisiana? What was school like? Yeah. Okay. Well, I had an older brother who was six years older. So by the time I got my turn came to school, I was, you know, he was 12 and I was six. So uh, my mother had thought about sending us uh, to public school but he ran into trouble and she didn't want me to run into trouble. So she put me in Catholic school uh, where we were Catholic. And um, I went to Catholic school until um, my 11th grade year. And I wanted to go to LSU, which was a state college. And I found out that at the time, um, the credits that I needed <clears throat> were not all there because I had taken religious classes. And at the time they had religious classes didn't um, count uh, for credits in the state school system. And they, um, so I went to school before my 11th grade, uh, summer school before my 11th grade year for 12th grade and after 12th grade, but I, um, it was quite an experience. So that sort of wrote my, uh, what I knew about 
um, New Orleans, which is very culturally rich and ethically diverse. Um, and I spent my time in these four walls of the school. Um, and when I leave to walk home, I walk through six blocks of, you know, something that was very different. So I didn't know how to, um, you know, I didn't know how to navigate that very well. So I kept my head low and I walked through the, through the neighborhoods and, and um, that's what I did until I started asking questions of my mom. Like why were there people of color in the community, but there weren't people of color in my school. So it was at an early age, I, I was awakened to discrimination and um, bigotry. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so having these kind of two worlds um, side by side and, and seeing such a drastic difference, um, how did that influence your social life? I had a very restricted social life. Um, the city, until I, until I reached an age where I was really curious, and that, was, that age was 16 and 17, um, that was the first time I went to Bourbon Street. And um, I really realized that they weren't, they weren't um, projected as monsters to me, people that were very different, but I was very shy around them. I didn't know exactly what to say or do. Um, and then I had this blossoming realization that I was gay on top of it. And so um, it was hard, it was really hard. And so when I was 19, I finally came out to my mom and dad and um, I was in the most amazing city in the world to me, um, to a lot of people. <laughs> um, and I had the advantage of taking that and, and making it mine, what I want. And my mother was really afraid that I was gonna, you know, you know, go to hell and all that stuff. And um, uh, she eventually came around before she died, but it was, it was really a hard battle with my family and my religion. And the social aspect of it was fine. They were all accepting on the social side uh, out in the world, but um, they wanted to keep me between those four walls. And I was really glad that I wanted to go to LSU because that started my journey um, and, you know, 11th grade um, for um, going to a public school. And I was constantly shocked and, and, and appalled every day because um, public school just, they were full of public people and they were, it was full of people of color and different ethnicities and um, very diverse and accepting of diversity where in my grade school years, it was not like that at all. So yeah, obviously, um quite a rich uh first part of your life already <laughs> pretty right. uh pretty interesting so um you know you said obviously catholic school being gay how um i guess early pre coming out um how did that how that feel being in that religious environment did that change at all how you viewed yourself well i thought i was i thought i was less than i thought i wasn't going to be accepted i knew that at, at like 16 and 17, that that was, this was a part of me, but I didn't have a word for it. I didn't have the word homosexual, certainly gay was not a word. Um, but when I was growing up, my brother who was six years older, he started picking on me like an older brother does. And um, he, he called me queer and I knew it wasn't, a, I knew it wasn't okay, 
um, my perception was it was a bad word, but I didn't know what it meant. And at 13, he was calling me, you know, I was really small and I was very, um, a, a free soul. So I, um, I did everything, um, <laughs> fabulously. And my mom and dad said later that they talked about me, um, when I was young and they said, Christopher is going to be probably queer or homosexual. And, you know, they came to terms with that. And then later when I came out, it was like, I, that was the first time I told them. But after that, mom told me, she said, your father and I had a discussion when you, when you were eight, that this is what you were going to be. And we, they shouldn't, well, well, they couldn't do it within their own religion, but they shouldn't hold me back and they should help guide me. And that was uh, something to hear because I heard that probably when I was 24, 25. And, um, I knew, I knew it was something they had all talked about. And also my grandparents, they talk, talked about it with my grandparents. There are pictures of me as a kid um, at Easter time and Christmas time um, with my two cousins, Barbara and Pam. And I was so gay in those pictures. I can look at those pictures and see that I was just a gay boy. And that was okay. That was I was acting just like the girls they were. And... I always felt comfortable around girls, more comfortable than I was around boys. Um, and so I was uh, attracted to girls that way, but not so much sexually, yeah. So um, you mentioned that your, your brother started picking on you um, in your teenage years, um, as older brothers like to do. Um, has your relationship with him changed at all? Did coming out change the dynamic at all? No, unfortunately, um, he he is was very Catholic and very religious, and he had his. This is a little pity party I'm going to have for myself, but I want to I want to share it with you because this this was part of the experience. When he had his first child, um, Joseph, he it was Christmas time, and the baby was like two months old, three months old, and um, I was I was I was not really close with my brother, but everybody was in one house. And so my mom wanted us to take a picture of me holding the baby. And um, Joel said, no, he's not touching my, my, my son. And it didn't hurt me as much as it made me realize this was something that was out in the world. And mama was really hurt by it and said, that's ridiculous. And there was a fight at Christmas time. And um, it was just over my holding the baby. She wanted a picture of me holding a baby. And so um, it became um, it became an issue within the family. And so that was the first time Joel sort of stood up and said, I don't, I don't want Chris to hold my son because he might turn him gay. I, I really don't know, but I don't know what was the ignorance that, that existed at the time was really hard to get through. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds uh, incredibly difficult. Um, you said your parents were a little more cognizant of what was going on and maybe mm -hmm. um, held back by religious beliefs, but still um, maybe supportive in some way. Is that true? Is your relationship with them a little bit better? I, I, I did um, get closer to my mom. My father died of, um, he was an alcoholic. He had renal problems and he died. Um, and my brother, I... I, I do believe he was an alcoholic and he died. So I will say that my whole family has, has died. There's no one left in New Orleans. So even my extended 
cousins moved out of Louisiana when Katrina hit. They moved to Mississippi and they moved to Texas. And um, it's been, it, I was here when Katrina happened and I thought, sort of felt guilty that I wasn't um, home. And, but I had people tell me, you know, what I realized all along was that no matter where I was, there's nothing that I could have done. But, um, but when I left, when I was 33 years old, by that time, my mother was fine with it. As she got older, she sort of mellowed a little bit and realized the world is just, it's just not going to be what she would want it to be and not going to be what the Catholic religion says. And even she sort of said, I, you know, in a, in a, in a apologetic, in a, in an apologetic way to me, you know, she just said, I'm so sorry. I was, I was blinded, you know, and she still was a Catholic daughter and she still um, had her faith and her faith is what kept her, um, warm and safe when she got older. But when she saw me, um, she, the gay part of me wasn't forefront at the forefront. It was just the fact that she saw me and, and who I was, and I was able to introduce her to my boyfriend and she cried and she said, it's so good to meet you. And, um, she came around. My, my father never did really come around. My brother never did really come around. So I chose to pick my own family. Sure. Um, and we would like to talk more about kind of the community that you've, you've chosen to surround yourself with, um, which maybe that starts, I mean, the next step would be, um, did you go to college after, after high school? Sure. I went to LSU for four years and you know, I just did this, the college thing and, and uh, the, the game's really big at LSU. I wasn't really a game kind of person. And um, I, that's sort of separated me from a lot of people, but um, the people that I chose to hang out with, um, I got involved with Rocky Horror Picture Show at an early age, 17 years old. And um, there was a, there was a, the varsity theater showed it every Friday and Saturday night. And I went there, um, I was in music theater, of course, and I went there and I thought, you know, this is a cool thing. I can like kind of direct the cast and I was a cast member um, for everybody in the cast. And that, that family that I met there, a lot of them were straight. A lot of them were just what we would call non-binary. Um, there were a lot of gay men and lesbians, um, but I still to this day um, talk to um, Riff Raff and he was, you know, a friend of mine, Paul, and back in Louisiana, he's a Facebook friend. And, um, there's a girl named, uh, there was a, a young woman named Charlene and she turned out to be lesbian, but she came out really late in life at 29. And, um, so, uh, you know, a lot of the friends that I made, um, I have kept in touch with and I've moved of course. And now I have friends here that I can, absolutely rely on but they're they're this, the friendship circle gets smaller and smaller and those people are my family you know um those people back in louisiana i would say were like cousins um but i have a few brothers and sisters here that i can rely on so you pick your family and you realize that you know regardless of of i i'm now i'm 58 years old so regardless of what I'd like to, to have as a family, um, 
with my, I'd like to commune with my real family, but that's not possible. <laughs> so I remember um, one time in New Orleans, I was at a drag show of all things. And the host was sort of saying, um, we were talking about Mother's Day and she was, you know, uh, talking about Mother's Day. And she said, it's, we have the privilege of being able to pick our own family. And that was the first time I heard that. And I had done that and not really realized that I had picked my own family. So it was special. What I realize now is it's, there is something in that that is very, very special and unique. Um, when I'm not, I'm not stuck with my family, um, I couldn't be stuck with them because they just didn't accept me. That's, that's the way it was. Well, I think it's really awesome that you've been able to find um, support network and people that you can call your family. Um, I mean, that's something that I, I think Several, I've known people with very difficult family backgrounds who've had to do the same thing. And I think it's really awesome that you've been able to find uh, um, yeah. something to kind of take the place and, and be your family and, and act like a family should act to you. Um, while you're at LSU, you said, you know, you got involved in the, in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, maybe not so much the sports culture at LSU, but did you find anything else at LSU um, in terms of community or belonging? I, when I, I was, I guess I was a sophomore and I had decided, I was 19 and I decided to come out to my mom. And I, I came out to her before I came out to friends. Although I was part of that Rocky Her Picture Show and they all knew I was gay. Um, when I came out, I came out in a lesbian bar called The Theater. And that night I just decided I needed to tell, to announce it. <laughs> and classic, uh, classic Chris. And so they all, you know, said, we know that you're gay. It's okay. You don't have to announce it. But I felt like I needed to announce it because it was, um, it was something that I was hiding, I thought, from everyone. And I never did say I was gay until that night. And um, every, it was just a non-issue for most people that, was, that were there. Um, I did find when I started going out to uh, the theater, which was a lesbian bar, there were guys that went out and I wasn't quite ready to go out and to a gay bar. Right. And, um, it was, it was a little tiny lesbian bar, but four or five blocks away, there were all these gay bars along Bourbon street. And I slowly, um, came to being more comfortable, I guess, with my own skin and I, in my own skin. And I also had a, a friend, his name was Todd and he, um, he sort of took me out and showed me um, bars and that became um, an issue. But when I came out, I will say, I came out in, when I'm in 1982 and that was before the AIDS crisis or right when it hit. So I, that, also played a role in whether or not I was going to be out. And I, you know, you don't have to have sex when you go out, but um, the bars in New Orleans in 1982, they didn't really promote safer sex at the time. We called it safer sex. And I got involved with a group of people who um, we, 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 um, we were passing out safer sex information and we would all go in the bar, there were six of us, and we wear white jeans and black shirts with big pink triangles. 
and we passed out stuff to people. We tried to hit the bars early because before people got drunk and being able to talk to them a little bit. And that was the beginning of my activism. And so I can say I've been an activist and I still am, um, but we were thrown out of more bars and we were welcomed in. And so we were asked to leave bars. You're scaring my patrons, the managers would say. And um, so we got to where we would stand outside where the bars, where the streets were, of course, everybody was walking along Bourbon Street and we would um, pass out flyers until we didn't have any more. And that usually was until 10 o'clock or so. And, um, and then we go, go home. So we weren't, weren't really uh, frequenting the bars that we were passing out flyers in, and we just wanted to reach um, people who didn't really know. And that lasted about a year, 19, 1983 and 84 was when we started seeing, uh, we, we would see people um, that I know now were sick at the time. Um, and they were still going to the bars. And so the next, next thing we decided to do was hit the bathhouses in New Orleans. There were two bathhouses, main bathhouses. And for being so young, there was, there was an older man. He was, he was about 40 years old. And he really felt like we needed to educate people against, against this affliction. And so um, it, was, it, was, it was like the, the being involved with the Rocky Horror Picture Show crowd but it really had a purpose. And I saw myself as um, being part of that purpose. And so um, we, we um, developed, had developed a no AIDS task force in New Orleans, New Orleans, no AIDS task force, New Orleans. And um, we didn't really know what to do or how to do it, but we were helping people who were um, sick and not able to, grocery shop for themselves are not able to take themselves to the doctor's office. And um, really just, you know, um, there were men that I worked with who were not much older than me who had AIDS. And by the grace of, of whatever, um, I, I, did not, I did not contract it. And so I did stupid stuff when I was younger. And it was before 1982, 83, when I was doing stuff that was not okay. And um, I don't know, it was just, it was just, I didn't, I didn't get it. And so, but I, I wanted to help people that, that had gotten it. And so um, that was the beginning of my uh, activism, as they say, but it was really just helping people understand there was, if you can just do this um, one thing and passing out condoms, we went to the health department and we got condoms, but the health department only gave so many to an individual. So there were, all of us would go. And, and so one time we, we were talking, um, going to that. And, and so one of the nurses asked us, what, what are you doing with these condoms? And we explained, we're going to the bars and we're passing them out. And this was before they deluged the bars with condoms. Um, all the bars had condoms on there, on the bar. It was a big round bowl. And um, way before that, um, we were doing that. So um, anyway, that's, that's part of my journey. And I um, was the president of the board of the Gay and Lesbian Community Center in New Orleans. And they had a big fundraiser and it was, it was around Halloween. The, um, 
the crew, a crew is like Mardi Gras crew, the crew of Lazarus um, had this and I was part of that crew and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and it was huge. And um, I walked away from it, but I left it in really good hands. We all left it in really good hands. Um, and they were raising money for different houses that were set up to house people with HIV and AIDS. And, um, and so I, when I left New Orleans when I was 33 and came to Colorado Springs, I was looking for something where I could spend my time and make a difference. And the only thing that I saw was the Gay and Lesbian Community Center in Colorado Springs. And now it doesn't exist as a wall, like four walls. I think it does exist as a, as a entity. Um, um, I know that they help put on pride and that's taken over by individual, I think, or individuals, but the Pride Center, the Gay and Lesbian Community Center just doesn't exist as it did. And I was the president of the board then. And so um, I was involved with that. I don't know if you wanted to know all that, but I just- No, this is all great. Thank you. I just, I just wanted to tell you my, my personal, uh, it's not just me. And also I'm gonna make that really clear. It's not just me. It's just, I had to go out and look for something that I felt like I, where I felt like I was making a difference for the community that, that I had here. And when I moved here in 1990 and uh, 1997, uh, it was on the tail end of 1992's Amendment 2. And I had lots of people who were in the know who said, why are you moving to Colorado Springs of all places? And I said, why not? You know, it's, it's, it's was someplace that I moved with my boyfriend at the time and he had an internship for an architect's office. And although it was troubled, um, it's a lot different than it is now. So 20, 24, 25 years later, you know, we still have issues. We, we currently have uh, board, you know, the, the school board members who are making transphobic posts and that's just not okay. And so I know there are people on the ground that are, can do a better job than I do, but um, I'm very aware um, that that's, you know, phobia still exists no matter what it's focused on. And having people just spout off on social media what they want, it's not okay. Well, I think it's amazing um, that you took part in that activism and you, you saw the early parts of the AIDS epidemic and you were able to uh, contribute to helping. You said um, the bars didn't want you there, that they, they felt you were scaring away their patrons. Did that change, that mindset change at all while you were, while you were active in Louisiana? Well, yes. And so um, we kept at it until... You know, I, I would say toward the end of the 80s, this is years I was doing this. And finally, we had uh, a couple of bartenders say, you know, a couple of managers would say, before the drag show, can you get up on stage and announce what you are and how, who you are and not to be afraid? <laughs> and so we did. We just, you know, and all the drag queens were amazing. And um you know, I, I, I did say I was, I got up there once or twice, but we had um, someone who would be able to say, you know, we are, um, this is our group. We are here to educate you. And the drag queens were first in line to say, yes, we are behind you. And so, and they have always been that. They've always been behind um, everything social movement uh, wise. And, and so um, in New Orleans, New Orleans was one of the, it, New Orleans 
San Francisco, New York. I mean, New Orleans was hit hard by the, by the epidemic. And um, I had started having, I started having friends that I had met that were dying. And so I had a personal connection to this, this thing. And um, by the end of the eighties and the beginning of the nineties was the worst time. And by the nineties, we had set up houses to take care of people and, and um, people. Um, the, the only thing we did not, we weren't able to move into was the politics. And I, I'm not familiar with politics. I wanna get involved with politics. The so, social aspect was that we were helping uh, educate people, but politically, I, I just didn't know the mayor or, or the governor or, you know, I, I mean, um, I don't know. We, we just didn't concentrate on that because we knew we weren't going to get anywhere. So we kept it um, social aspects. And, you know, during Mardi Gras, the first Mardi Gras, we had a special float in a certain parade um, that was talking about, you know, take care of yourself, take care of your friends. And um, anyway, that's, that's how that worked for me. And when I came to Colorado Springs, I did the same thing. I found the the no aids. Um, um, it was out of color. It was out of Denver, but um, we still had a connection in Colorado Springs. Everything was in Denver, but Colorado Springs is like there was this invisible line where we couldn't do stuff and we could do stuff. And um, I think that's a little blurred now. But at the time when I right when I moved here, it was it was evident that we didn't have aids in Colorado Springs. So we don't need that, you know? Yeah. Sure. 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 Um, how did the uh, health system and the government kind of view AIDS during your time um, in your activism in Louisiana? Um, Louisiana it was in South Louisiana, especially um, New Orleans and Baton Rouge was down there. There were, um, they were telling it as if it was you know, a fact that um, HIV and AIDS was just not here. And in New Orleans, we had people dying left and right. I remember it was during the 90s. I could have gone to a funeral a week. Um, and those were people that I knew. There were lots of people that I didn't know. And um, I also saw, we saw that it was not um, a gay thing. It was not a gay disease. Um, the prostitutes, the sex workers, uh, rather, in New Orleans were um, getting hit hard. And so, um, and the black community was getting hit very hard. And so we didn't really have a, a Hispanic community. Um, but, um, you know, it became much bigger than me and much bigger than my little group thought it, it could make a difference. Um, we had to have the medical community say, this is what you do, or this is what you can do to help yourself be safe. And um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know exactly when, but it does seem like it came, a, a, a groundswell of information came forward and they started to say, um, include people in this, and, and include people um, that were operating on the down low, um, I mean, lots of people were becoming infected um, by their by by actions like that. I'm I'm, I'm not going to say that um, that's the only way, but there were ways that it was done, and um, 
Um, anyway, I just know that that was before we had um, medicine. We had AZT at the time, but that was far worse than, than everything that helped. Um, I saw a man, I, you know, he said he was on AZT and, you know, he, he, he survived a little bit and then it got worse and worse. And so um, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have any way to tell people, you know, except to go into bars and hand them flyers and say, you have to take care of yourself, you know? And a lot of people just didn't want, you know, they didn't want to hear it, anything that we said. Um, and that was a hard time too. I think, I think I went from the very beginning of the, uh, my, my experience was I went from the very beginning of the AIDS crisis all the way to now. And what I've seen is amazing. Um, and we had, um, yeah, I'll just leave it there that, that we have seen amazing things, but we still are dealing with um, opportunity issues. We're dealing with discrimination. We're dealing with bias. And um, that hurts me because basically it, it's focused on the kids. And I just don't. Um, what I see now, my, my own little girl, she's not mine. She's my my uh, partners, but um, she came out as non-binary when she was 12 and she's going to be 13 in two months. And I being who I am, I've I talked to her and talked to her and talked to her about it. And I focused on, um, you know, getting her, I mean, she has the internet and she sees that, that other people are like this and little girls are like this. And she identifies as um, they, them, and um, I focused on making sure that the, 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 um, the, they call it a queer alliance at school. And I went to talk to who, the sponsor of that. And I just wanted to see where she was and who she was. And she's cool and groovy. And she's only there to support the kids, which is amazing. And they have 30 kids that, that go to that every month. 30 kids who are just some kids are just visiting. But a lot of kids are just curious about what is this and is it possible that I'm this? And we don't ever um, direct them to you have to be this or you have to be that. That's one thing I told. Um, I'm just going to call her Layla. <laughs> that uh, that she can't. Um, she doesn't have to make her mind up and, and stick with one thing. She's young. She she may be five different things before she settles on one. And she. When I told her that, she was really surprised. She said, why, why not? And I said, well, you know, we all change. We all say, this is what I want to do. And then two months later, we change. That didn't work, you know? And she said, oh, that's really cool to know because I, I was worried I was going to make the wrong decision. Well, you don't have to make the wrong decision. You just have to be. You just have to be. And, um, and we're treating her. She, she calls me her second dad. I'm not married to her dad. And she has a mother and she has a, a, um, a stepfather. So it's really complicated. But um, I mean, so they were here today. Last night, they spent the night. And um, we talked about it a little bit, talked about I was going to do this interview today. And it was important that I knew that she was okay. And um, yeah, she's, <laughs> she said that uh, the only thing she has to gripe about is she got a haircut and five boys are picking at her about being a Karen because she has a Karen haircut. 
She doesn't have the spikes up here, but she has a little short, you know, a little bob. And uh, that's all she's complaining about. She's not, not, nobody's saying anything about her being non-binary or they, them. They do that in school as a matter of course. It just, that's just what they do. And even the teachers are saying, you know, this is, these are my pronouns. So pronouns are, you know, as you know, are huge and they can make a difference in how a person feels, you know, um, a young person, especially how they feel about themselves. And um, so I've had a unique um, experience. Um, and I, I realize I do, I think that maybe, you know, Trey sort of knew that I had uh, this unique experience. Maybe not, maybe he'll see this and he'll just, you know, he'll be surprised, but um, yeah. I don't know if I don't know if I'm saying what you want me to say, but <laughs> whatever you want to say is what I want you to say. So um, I have worked in the school elementary school system since I was about 18 years old. So about 13, 14 years now. And it's it's pretty remarkable um, seeing kids rally around each other like that. And I think it's really cool that um, Layla has had that had that experience. And um, I mean, that's a really big difference from maybe the experience someone would get in the 90s or or even 10 years ago. Yeah, no doubt it's different. And um, for them, it's, it's, it's not that um, I, I know anybody my age is jealous, but we're very happy they can be who they are um, where we couldn't be who we were. We had to hide it or something. And um, that pressure off, uh, like I said, she's just talking about somebody making fun of her haircut. I said, baby, that's, that's just boys. They're going to do that. But I, I did tell her, you know, if it becomes an issue, you need to tell an adult, you need to tell your counselor at school, you need to tell the teachers, that's not okay. They're not treating me well, and they're picking at me. And what she said to me was there was a coach that she was in PE, and a coach just said, well, just, just walk it off. I said, no, that's not the answer that you're going to hear, I mean, you know. You go to the best, the best person, best person, the counselor, school counselor, and make sure that they know and make sure they know the names of the boys, because we don't know what's going to happen in, you know, uh, a while, you know, I'm not going to say, but I just, you know, you have to let people know that that's going on, but that's a simple problem. I think that can be fixed really, really simply the fact that she's again, identifying as they, them, is not an issue at the school. And that's really surprising. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty dramatic difference. Um, I've been here since 1990 and yeah, I mean, um, I'm just glad that, that they're able to have that experience and that you're, um, you're there to see it as well and, and support them. Mm -hmm. Um, so moving back a little bit, I'm sorry, you're jumping around here a little bit, but what, what did you study at LSU? Um, computer programming. Well, computer science, and then <laughs> what? Um, what I what I couldn't do was get past the calculus that we had to learn as as a under computer science. I was on the, my third time taking it, and I was failing it again. It just just do, doesn't work with my mind. So I went to a career counselor, and she said, "Well, you can change your career. It'll be you know, and get." And graduate. And so if you take all your mass and you put it toward this and you go into accounting, you can, uh, you can graduate. And so I, I graduated with a degree in accounting, um, but I've always been interested in computers. And so 
that's what I did. Um, you know, I thought computer programming would be amazing. And in 1985, 86, it was amazing. But um, I remember we had to, um, the only computer they had was um, at, in the library. And we had to get uh, compilation time. We had to sign up for that. Um, so it was a long time ago. I talk about that like it was a long time ago because it was, <laughs> it was a long time ago. And, um, yeah, so I graduated with a degree in accounting. Um, so you were, um, active, you were doing activism at the same time you were in college. Is that right? Yeah. Did your choice of major, was that influenced at all about the activism you're doing? No, I think I separated that in my mind and, and kind of kept it separate. I had a school career and I had this whole other life, but I was the first person to go to, uh, graduate from college in my family forever, I think. Um, and so I was really focused on getting, you know, if it took me five years, it took me five years, but I was really focused on that. And um, I worked while I was in school and college and I had, you know, several thousand roommates, it seems. Um, we, uh, and so, you know, with that, I, I did have a little bit of overlap. I had those friends that were roommates and I had school and I sort of kept that separate. When I was little, I thought that I wasn't worthwhile because I knew there was something different about me at an early age. Um, I would say it was seven or eight because my brother, my brother like brought my attention to it. And I felt like I needed, I was a um, Cub Scout, a Weeblo, a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout. I, um, I overachieved um, in order to feel worthy. So I can say that now. Um, I didn't really realize that until I was starting. I was really thinking about my career and, you know, where I was going with things. And, and I really put a lot of pressure on myself at a young age. I had to be, I had to do really, I didn't, my parents never told me I had to make A's, but I had to make A's. And so I, I overachieved. And I think, I think that um, that can be a, um, a sign that you are, don't feel like you're worthy in another part of your life. And um, my parents would always say, gosh, you, you're doing really well. But again, they just wanted me to do my best. And my best was, you know, I was putting all this pressure on myself and um, it still wasn't good enough for me because that was before I came out. And I think that when I came out, I realized there was that part of me that I was fighting. I had to be 100% perfect in order to make up for this part of me that religion and society said was wrong, absolutely wrong. Um, and I do, I do think that was why I did it. I overachieved. And when I was, I was 30, right before I moved here, right before 33, um, my boyfriend said, you know, you need to like calm down and like slow down a little bit because you were doing 50 things all at once. And on top of that, socially, I was doing everything. I had to be in the middle of everything. Um, so that's kind of another discussion. And <laughs> why, why, why as a kid, I put so much pressure on myself because I felt like I wasn't worthy. And so um, moving into Colorado Springs and kind of going into an environment that may be a little more antagonistic in some ways, did you feel that pressure again to have this really perfect image? 
No. No. No, I, I gave that up right before I, I moved here. And it was only with the help of my boyfriend. He, he just had a really frank discussion with me. He said, you know, you may not like what I'm about to say, but um, you're a great guy. But God, you just need to relax. And so when I came here, I um, it was the first time I had uh, seen the mountains. It was the first time I had experienced the seasons, four seasons. And I, um, I really did relax. I sort of like we went hiking on the weekends. It might have been little hikes to start. Um, I remember we tried to tackle the incline when I moved from New Orleans below sea level. Oh, and I, both of us were not having it. <laughs> so I don't think we made it at all anywhere. And so I think we sat down and we also sort of said to ourselves, we want, we want to enjoy what is Colorado, but we have to do, go slow. And so that also helped me. Um, I remember going up and down stairs. I got my first accounting job at a tech company, uh, Intel, I think it was, and on the Garden of the Gods. And it was, um, they had stairs and I was taking stairs. And I remember just two flights of stairs, I would be, oh my God, I'm dying. But it was just, it took me a good six, four to six months to acclimate to the South. It's crazy. Oh yeah. Um, I've been here almost all my life and the UCCS stairs still kick my butt every day. So (laughs) (laughs) some things never change, I guess. Um, when you first got here to Colorado Springs, what did you do uh, for work? I, I did not have a job. I moved here without a job and I was really nervous about that, but I had savings. Um, my boyfriend had a job waiting. So he started like the, the two days after we moved here. Um, I remember I, he was gone to work and I was still unpacking. Um, but um, I decided to, I, I don't remember how I looked for work. It's so different now, but um, I think it was, it was Intel was the first job I had. And I was uh, a junior accountant and I had been a senior accountant where I was before, but they, you know, start me, whatever. And um, so one day I was like, I had this work that, in my inbox and it would come to me and I'd do it. And then I put it in the outbox and I wouldn't know who I was helping or anything like that. And so I, I figured that one day I would like to have a job where I would be able to, you know, do the work, but able I'd be able to see how it affected the community that I cared about, how or the community in general. Um, I didn't want to do county work forever because I never did see the results of my labor. I never saw who was being helped or anything like that. And so I was volunteering at the Fine Arts Center. Um, and I was talking to somebody there and I said that same thing. I said, I'm just, I just want a job where I can see how what I'm doing is affecting the community that I live in. And um, they talked about um, the Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado as a program of the Guild Foundation. And they said, you know, you might want to go talk to the ED there. And I said, okay. So I called them and um, I talked to the ED and she said, why don't you come in? We'll talk. It turned out being a four hour talk. Um, I had told her everything. And she said, at the end, I said, you know, I'm looking for a job. I've been, enjoyed this, but you know, any other names you can give me. And she gave me a lot of names. It wasn't just four hours or nothing. And she said, if you can do this, um, we have a receptionist job. <laughs> and I said, I can read financials 
this is how this started. And she said, none of our program officers can read financials to tell if a nonprofit is, is soluble. And um, what they did was they made grants to nonprofit organizations that were non-gay. And they had to put the gay symbol, the Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado, uh, advertised that they received money from the Gay and Lesbian Fund. It was um, quite um, controversial at the time. And it was something I would love, would have loved to be part of. I wound up being there for 10 years. And um, I started as a receptionist and I would read the financial reports and, um, you know, nonprofits have problems. <laughs> so my thinking was the first two months, I said, none of these nonprofits are anybody I give money to. And they, they sort of <laughs> helped me understand we're giving money for this. We want to give money to, you know, American Heart Association. That's great but we want to give money to smaller nonprofits in rural parts of, the, parts of the state that would advertise that they received money from the Gay and Lesbian Fund. So I, I left there, um, the program was dismantled, um, was, had gone away. And so I was a senior program officer by the time I left. And so um, I'd been able to use my uh, accounting skills and also learned a lot about giving to nonprofits and um, one thing we all always did was we visited the board members of the nonprofits and we said, you know, you have to say, um, you have to change your non-discrimination policy to include sexual orientation and gender identity. And there were a lot of nonprofits who just said, nope, I'm not going to do it. And then it became, you know, became commonplace in Colorado and for the state and for the nation. And um, I remember one time I was working at there and I said, I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime that we'll have gay, uh, that we'll have marriage equality. And so uh, I was shocked when we did have marriage equality. So things move along, you know, like they should. Um, but at the same time, I feel it's really important to give, have, that people have the tools they need to take care of themselves. And um, I feel like I'm talking a lot about myself, sorry. <laughs> it's almost like this interview is about you. I know, I know. <laughs> No, that's really cool. I think it's also really cool that you you found a way to use um, accounting for something that's that's good for nonprofits for helping that community. Um, did you find working in the nonprofit sector helped you to kind of expand out your your community in that in that sense? Yeah. So I worked for ten years for the Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado, and then beyond that, I have continued to work for nonprofits. So I would say for twenty years, I've been working for nonprofits. I currently work at a nonprofit called Friends of the Children. And I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm the director of operations. So I'm doing all that stuff and more. Um, but what they do is they get people who are young, young people who are like four to five, four to six years old. And um, they put them with a friend, professional mentor, we pay them um, to be with them for 12 years of their life. It's part of a national organization, but we're starting this nonprofit here in Colorado Springs. It sounds really bizarre, but I fell in love with it when I did a little research. And so I had, I had been working for the Independent Center, which um, provides services to people with disabilities. This is all, all within my wheelhouse. I love this stuff, but I was a manager there. So I managed 28 people and it was a lot of work, but then COVID hit and we went from 28 people to eight. <laughs> and then eventually they said, we, we don't really need you anymore. 
And so, um, yeah, it was really hard. And so for 10 months, I lived on my, um, but from the kindness of strangers, no, I I had money, (laughs) a little money. Um, uh, I, and so I picked and choose, I, I just got really picky about who I wanted to spend my time with if I got a job. And um, I loved that, the, the friends of the children. And then I found out that um, Judy Kara had been hired as executive director. And I have known Judy since the days of the Gay and Lesbian Fund. So I knew she would be at least um, okay with me. So I, even now I sort of thought, um, I think I'm really obviously gay, but I still think it's it's like, you know, I, I worry about that. I worry about whether or not I'm going to, I'm not going to work for a place that where I have to hide myself. I have to hide my family. I, I just, I won't do that. I never have done that. Although it was, it was harder in Louisiana. You know, I worked for um, the town of Walker, the, the, the mayor's office in the town of Walker. And I never did. I never did say I was, you know, it was just like, it was very, very um, country and they were very, very religious. And there's nothing wrong with being religious. I just think the, everything that goes with it kind of restricts your ability to be who you are. So. Um, so, so you said it was actually harder in Louisiana. Um, did you still feel any of that? Uh, how do I want to word this? I guess. Um, were you still pretty cognizant of how you wanted to present yourself when you moved to Colorado Springs? Were you worried you'd have to be more protective of that? I was initially. I, I never did. I never did say during the initial interview. Uh, never revealed anything about myself that would, um, you know, betray me. I thought it was a, a, like a betrayal. Um, when I was working for the tech companies, I for as an accountant for the tech companies, I didn't know how they felt about things because. Um, they, they had, they had a, a websites and stuff, but they didn't have their non-discrimination, non-discrimination policy advertised on that website. It was really hard. And so I didn't know what Intel thought. I didn't know what Omnipoint thought. Um, so I did sort of like, if I got the job, maybe a month or two in, I would be talking to friends there in the office. And, um, or if I saw someone who seemed to be okay with, uh, with everything, you know, I would mention to her or him, um, about Rob and my, my partner and, um, and just sort of like cringe and wait. And I did that in the, in 97, 97 is when I moved here. I did that until like 2000 for a good three years. And I had three different accounting jobs in three years because those companies would start and go under and start and go under or move. And so, um, and then later I thought, I just don't want to waste my time. So I, but I will say that I still look at their backgrounds. I look at the company and make sure that they're, they have a non-discrimination policy that's, that's on their website that I can look at. Most, most do now. And, um, and then I also look at it to see if it's the kind of company where I want to work for. So yeah, yeah I did for a while. Fun. I did for a while, but not anymore. That's really good advice though. Um, I had not thought about kind of exploring the company and seeing what they choose to show and how that relates to maybe um, how they interact 
Um, so you've been here since you said 97, is that right? 97, I moved in. 97. Yeah. So obviously Colorado Springs has changed an awful lot in, yeah. in 20, 23, 24 years. Um, what were your first impressions when you got here? Well, like I said, I think there were friends that had, had warned me against it and said, oh, what are you doing moving to Colorado Springs? It's the hate capital of the, of the United States and all this stuff. And um, I just, I kept an open mind. I was doing it for my partner. Um, I figured we didn't know where we were going to live. And so when we first got here, we got an apartment downtown and we didn't know what was around us. And we found Manitou Springs fairly quickly. And Manitou was like this liberal bastion, um, accepting and, you know, acknowledging who you are as a person. And, and it was like, I don't know, 10 minutes away. <laughs> and so I, I, I still don't understand it, why it's there. Um, and then Colorado Springs is right next door, literally. Um, but it's, it's maintained and it's, I, I have friends that live there and, um, but I think, um, I, I did, I kept an open mind. I just, I just, you know, I, I knew the history. I knew that, um, you know, the, the way it was, and it was only five, I think five years past the amendment too. Um, I think maybe it had gone before the, the state. Um, I'm sorry, the, the, the um, federal Supreme Court and the Supreme Court, you know, shot it down, said you cannot discriminate against people, period. So um, I think it took like three to five years. And I think that that's when I moved here was right after that. So I had high hopes. Um, but there are religious parts of this, this city that were huge then and not so big now. And um, they, they keep quiet now. So they don't, they're not so much against, um, you know, bashing, uh, for gas bashing gays, not, not so much anymore. Yeah. Um, you mentioned obviously that, that Manchu Springs was one of those places um, that you really enjoyed. Were there any other places in the community, spaces in the community that you uh, took part in? Um, I, because I lived downtown, I, I went to downtown places. Um, the downtown was very different back then too. Um, the mayor was, um, I think right after she, it was Mary Lou Makepeace, the first female mayor. And um, I went down to Acacia Park at one point and it was just a, I, at the time I thought, this is nice, but it's kind of a wasted space. It should be really nice. And two or three years after that, she and, and a committee put in the Uncle Wilbur Fountain. They cleaned up the park. And um, I remember a friend said, all you have to do is go down to Acacia Park and you can get anything you want down there, any drug, anything. And so I said, oh, that's weird. It's right in the middle of town. <laughs> and Colorado Springs, for what it was back then, was kind of small. It, we did not have everything out east that we have all the building and stuff. Um, it was really weird. Um, but I think, um, I found that the gay and lesbian community center, I found those people there. There used to be a bar open called the hide and seek that was open for a while. And I went there, um, and met people there, um, mostly during the day. Um, and then inside out youth services as well was, was a part of this community. 
and now it's amazingly flourishing. And um, um, there was a time when I was the executive director of Inside Out Youth Services. And it was, um, we had recently, well, the independent newspaper building, um, we were in the basement of that. And when my first job, the board told me I needed to find a new space. (laughs) And so I needed to be kind of quick about it, but I moved uh, our, our operations to another building. And I can't remember what school was next to it. But we were about to have a grand opening and the building burned down. And they, you know, they checked it. They checked me, they checked my operations person and um, they asked the kids, you know, did they ever see anything? And what I think, what I think may have happened was um, the school was only two blocks down the street. And um, I think there were people, kids that just didn't want to see inside out there. And I think maybe, I mean, it's just what I think. Um, I think maybe the uh, fire department never found anything. They, they did, never found arson. They never found, the only thing they found was um, a ballast and a light had overheated. And they said that was um, probably what happened, but the way the fire spread was kind of weird. So anyway, that was heart wrenching. And um, so there was Inside Out, there was um, the Hide and Seek. I mean, again, that was kind of, I kind of had a easy time finding what I needed to find. Um, people that, that were like-minded and um, yeah. And so what were, could you describe kind of what those places were like, what the community was like back then? Yeah, so there, there is a court here um, uh, United, the United Court of the Pikes Peak Empire, and they have their group that raises money for nonprofits, and they, they're very similar to the Gay and Lesbian Fund because they, they raise money and they give it to everybody, you know. Um, and so there was a time I was kind of peripherally involved with the court, um, and they were amazing. There were older, 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 older people that had been through. Um, a lot of stuff, and uh, a lot of them are dying now. <laughs> They're just gotten a lot older, and they still exist. And um, I, the first time I had dinner um, with anybody from there, I had a really amazing conversation with the history of Colorado Springs and how before um, we had religious organizations build these huge buildings, they they were very much like Colorado, like uh, Manitou. Like Colorado Springs was a lot like Manitou. And then they brought in their money, the religious organizations brought in their money and they just, I don't know, it just changed. Um, but I think, I think, you know, I think you can always find um, if you look, and that's one thing I won't do is isolate myself. I just, there's, there's no way. Um, but there are people who do, uh, especially older gay people. Um, they decide they are too old to socialize. They're too old to go out. They might have one or two friends. Um, they do stuff with, but um, I, I don't think I'll ever isolate myself. I do enjoy younger people. I enjoy hanging around their energy. I enjoy um, the fact that they're so much more involved than uh, in the community than, than I was. And uh, it's amazing. 
That's awesome. So you still engage with those those spaces? Um, some of the more, I guess, like there's Club Q, the underground. Do you do you have any connections there? No, Club Club Q, I don't. The underground, I don't. I was until they closed a while and they reopened. Um, I think there's a bar on West on East Bijou. Uh, it's like a, a um, can't think of the name of it, but it's like a um, like a cabaret bar. They have singing. I've been there a couple of times. It's fun, um, but it's very different than when I was younger. But when I was younger, I would go and watch people dance, or I would dance. Now I have to find a place to sit, <laughs> and I just like to talk. And you know, honestly, um, because of COVID, the last two and a half years, um, there was a time that I was forced to be, um, you know, alone or have just one or two people around me, and. Um, Right, certainly right now, or the last four or five months, um, we are going to houses where people exist. <laughs> and some people wear masks and some people don't, whether whatever they're comfortable with is fine. And we all talk. And I mean, I, I have missed that so much. COVID has really put a kink in not only, um, you know, our lives as gay people, but um, but in the society as, as, a, as a whole, I think gay people especially, um, they may be more susceptible to being alone. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good insight too. Um, and something, I mean, I haven't heard a lot about. I've heard some of the more at-risk populations, but definitely not um, as it concerns the LGBTQ plus community. Um, how has COVID, maybe during the times, especially with deep lockdown and stuff, how did that affect your work? Did that change anything that you were doing? How you're interacting with people? Yeah. So I was working for the Independent Center and they, they provide services to people with disabilities of all kinds. Um, and so we went from an, uh, a drop-in place where they would come and just drop in and congregate and be among themselves and um, it was like that. And also if they needed services, we had, you know, they could go and to different offices and get services immediately. I think it was March 16th or 18th or something like that. We went, um, remote and we weren't prepared for it. Um, and, uh, the, the management was a little suspicious that, you know, we wouldn't get anything done, but we did. Um, people rose to the occasion and I think, um, in a lot of ways, I know I was more busy. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, I don't know what anyone else went through, but um, I was very affected by COVID and being isolated. Um, I had my boyfriend and, and Layla and um, that was fine, but almost everybody else I had to stay in touch with on the phone or through texts. And that was, fine for a while, but then I really missed seeing them. I just think that as part of living, you see people. And um, then it became normal for me to text and, and you know, call. Um, and I, I think um, over time, we just, I just got used to it. I think I just got used to being, having that way to communicate. Did you see um, the LG, 
BTQ plus community kind of change the ways they're communicating or changing spaces during the time in COVID? I know the bar um, closed down for a while and Inside Out had to change the way they communicated. They, um, they immediately went to, uh, to uh, virtual and they kept having the groups and they didn't have very many people in the beginning and joined like, like a, a Teams group or Zoom. Um, but eventually they, they started building up again. And um, they also had one-on-one um, counseling with kids. And I also think that kids were able to open up more through virtual connections than they, than they ever would have, you know, going into a room and talking with an adult. They're never really able to shut the door. So there really isn't any privacy in that. Um, and I think, you know, it's just what, I'm, what I think the experience um, actually helped kids open up and talk, uh, say, you know, share what they really feel um, and not have 15 kids outside of the door waiting on them. Um, and from what I understand, it's been, it's been very illuminating. <laughs> um, and, and what they're, what they were able to share with uh, the counselors were, was, was very, um, I mean, they came, they, they had, they had more, I'm going to say this, they had, they, they were able to take advantage of it more and they actually called in um, more professional people to help the kids. So also, think, the, uh, oh, sorry, go I was going to say um, the instance of child abuse rose during COVID and the fact that they were there with their caretakers or, or caregivers and their parents in the house and they couldn't really go anywhere. Um, there were more instances of, of child you know, abuse and neglect. It was really bad. But we learned a lot because of it. Do you think you're able to maybe reach some people that you otherwise wouldn't be able to reach because of being able to communicate through that online medium? Yeah, I think maybe... Not so much that I wouldn't have been able to reach, but I think more more thorough conversations. I had conversations with friends that I, I have known for years through the phone that were very revealing. So I think I think it works all the way around. If you don't have someone in front of you, maybe you're able to be more open. Yeah, I don't know how that works, awesome. but it does. Yeah, yeah, it definitely changes the way people interact. And I've, I've noticed that too, maybe um, increase in vulnerability, or maybe it's just the isolation and people uh, wanting to have more genuine connection or however, however that works. Um, so obviously, you've had a, a rich and varied uh, work experience here in Colorado Springs. Um, you have worked and I am sorry, let me double check to make sure that I have this. And so you worked with the Southern Colorado AIDS Project, right? For a number of right. years. Yeah. Um, and what was that like, I guess, when you first started there? When I first started, it was called the Southern Colorado AIDS Project and SCAP was, was how we referred to it. Um, and the CEO and um, some of us, we all got together and we talked about um, staying relevant as a health service organization because we saw that there wasn't as many people with HIV or many people with AIDS. Um, so to stay relevant, we wanted to maintain the fact that at, 
at its heart, um, Southern Colorado AIDS Project was just that. Um, Southern Colorado AIDS Project, Denver AIDS Project, um, the Northern was Fort Collins AIDS, Pro AIDS Project, and then the Western one is Grand Junction. They all merged and they became one entity with the home office in Denver. So that's when we became the Colorado Health Network. So um, we covered the, the entire state and the one that I worked with was the one that covered 25 counties all the way to New Mexico and Kansas border. And so, um, oh, I'm sorry, what was, what was the question? I'm sorry. Oh, just uh, expanding more about uh, your work with the Southern Colorado AIDS oh, yeah. Project. And yeah, so we, we made that move. Um, and um, then we brought in more people and we, we combined our, our fundraising into one place. We combined our administration into one place, but they still needed a director of each, each place, each um, region. So that's what I was, I was a regional director. Um, I worked there a little over five years. It was amazing. Um, and that too was a place that, that went through amazing changes. In that five years, we went from an HIV and AIDS services to health services, which included um, women's health, mammograms, men's health, um, oral health, mental health. Um, it was it was amazing, and so we did it really fast. In five years, we we grew really exponentially, and right now they're fine, but we we went through growing pains. But in that process, we learned, we asked the original people that use our services, what more do they need? What more can we offer you? And mental services, the uh, behavioral health was one of the first things they said. Um, you know, you have someone who has HIV or AIDS, but, but they're not really comfortable going to a regular uh, clinical therapist because they, they feel like they have to tell the whole story. And we already knew the story. So, um, so we brought on mental health first, our behavioral health, and then oral health was also a big ask. Um, we couldn't get what people who are HIV positive or have AIDS, or really if they're just gay, they're not really comfortable going to a dentist. Um, I know I wasn't, I had, I looked for one when I moved here, I called the, um, gay and lesbian community center and I said, Hey, do you have any dentists? that are cool and groovy that I can go to. I don't want to have to explain everything. And they said, yes, we do. We have four. Um, so we brought on the oral health and, um, you know, the fact that um, statistically lesbians don't have mammograms at, at regular intervals. So we had a big push for that. And I don't know if, uh, if that was good, but we had a enormous amount from people of color, women of color, um, Hispanic and Black who took advantage of the services. And that was amazing. So everything we did, we asked them what they wanted. And um, yeah, that was amazing. That was a really amazing job. Um, but, um, you know, at some point I became to get, became, um, I, I just burned out. I've been there for over five years and I've been doing it and doing it. I remember I'd worked from seven in the morning to seven at night, it was hard. And um, I just talked to the CEO a couple of times. Finally, I said, I'm just, I just need to move on. You need to get someone in here who's, 
can do this because I also, um, we also had people dying left and right from AIDS or from, um, also we started um, a syringe exchange program in Pueblo. We were tried to get one started here, but in El Paso County, but El Paso County said, we don't have that problem, but we had a huge problem in Pueblo and there were people that were dying. And it, it harkened back to that time um, in the early 80s and beginning of the 90s where I was just, it was really hard for me to deal with that. And so I moved on. Gotcha. I mean, that's incredible work. I didn't realize um, that that was so comprehensive and you guys had had done so much. Um, I'm sure that did a lot for the community, bringing the community together, having that kind of um, unified health service service plan. After that, what did you what did you end up doing? Um, let's see. Oh, I went to the independent center um, to be a manager. And then I, after I had um, been there for two months, they moved another department under me. And so it was, it was a lot. <laughs> um, that was, that was, I had never managed that many people. You know, I say manage, but uh, there were people that you don't have to manage. They, they're professionals. They do their job. I just, you know, if they want a day off, I just say, okay, you know, it's, it's fine. Um, but I did their payroll. I did all those stuff. And then slowly after COVID hit, uh, there were people that dropped off because of attrition. And there were also people that were laid off because we just couldn't afford them. Um, we, were a, we were funded um, through grants and we had some state funding and national funding, but a lot of our funding was from local um, people and um, also local foundations and our personal foundations and everybody stopped you know it was really weird i don't i think i think giving was was giving given in places that needed it and people that really didn't need it um so bad they they suffered so um i was there for two years i think and um then i was laid off so at the time i wasn't laid off you know, at the at 2020, I think it was, there were so many people laid off at one time. And I think I lost my job in February, 2021. And um, there were still some um, people dealing with um, not working, um, but not as many as in 2020. So um, it became, it was really hard to look for another job. So I was out of work for 10 months and then uh, found the Friends of the Children. Gotcha. Yeah, that's quite a journey. Um, during your work, obviously your work plays uh, into activism and, and um, social causes. Have you participated in activism outside of, of your work as well? Um, I, I did go to some George Floyd stuff, um, some some not protests, but they're just, you know, demonstrations. And I did that. And I, I, I met people that were, you know, I, I think they wanted to be there because I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying it's, they were there because it was something to do. Um, and that bothered me. Um, and I also realized I'm not an outdoor kind of person. <laughs> and, um, 
if I'm not there uh, or if I'm there, I don't know if it really made a difference. Um, so um, I found other ways to do, to lend my voice to the cause. So it was very horrible what happened and it's still happening. Um, I pay attention to gun laws and the fact that every, you know, three, four months, there's something that happens and I still do that. But as I get older, I, I realize that there's only so much I can do. I think the steam kind of has gone out of me. Um, and I'm more focused on, you know, my life as it is. And um, also Layla. Um, so long history of activism, working with social causes and all that. Um, how has that changed the way that you, you see yourself? You know, telling you all this is, seems like I'm, you know, bragging, but I have actually done all that. And I'm very proud that I've done all that. And so um, I think there's a part of me that I felt like I was thrown in, in the beginning, thrown into something. I felt like it was only right to do it, to be able to, you know, pass out flyers and and being kicked out of bars and stuff like that. I think it got me going. And I realized that, you know, if you, if we don't help as a gay community, if we don't help our, our own, there's no one there to help us. And I, I feel like at the time for the year it was, there were a lot of people that just felt that way. They just felt like, you know, they're not, they're not paying attention to me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to skid by. And, um, the fact that we were a small group of six or eight and we go into bars and we'd have our little outfits on and it was obvious we'd go in there and um, we pass out stuff. Um, I didn't see anything wrong with that. I, I really didn't understand the managers and the bar, the head bartenders that would say, you know, you need to leave because you're scaring our patrons. I said, they should be scared. I remember, I remember one time they should be afraid because they don't have the information they need. Um, and that started me on this journey, um, to where it became at the time, I, I thought it was very personal. And then all the way around to now that I feel it's very personal that I help, um, raise Layla in a way that's healthy and she understands her power and her strength. Um, it's, it's sort of a, um, full circle that I've made and, you know, at my age, it's, it's something I can do. And I feel like I'm affecting not only the community, but I'm affecting one person who may make a huge contribution in the community in the future. That's awesome. Um, so as you said, you, you've accomplished a lot of really cool stuff in your life. Is there anything that stands out to you as being kind of your proudest, proudest work? Well, not, not so much work, but I remember, um, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago or longer. Um, I achieved Eagle Scout and the Boy Scouts had a bad reputation um, for not accepting um, gay scout leaders or gay members. And it was symbolic, but I did send my Eagle Scout badge back to Boy Scouts of America. And for me, that was really big because I worked so hard for that badge but I wrote uh, an amazing letter to me, <laughs> it was amazing, but I didn't make it really long. I just said, 
you know, the Boy Scouts just do not represent um, what I worked so hard to achieve. And um, I did it. I, I talked to another person who um, sent back theirs in out of Montana or something like that. And he was from Montana and um, he was conservative politically, um, but he understood that it was just wrong. You never, you know, like, why, why, why not have gay scout leaders? Why, what are you saying? We never, never could get them to admit that the boys would be, I mean, not from the Boy Scouts, the boys would be led to believe this is right. Um, so I, I think that was a proud moment for me. Um, also, it's, it, you know, it was hard. It was really hard. But um, everything else I've done, I think, um, I think the very first thing I did, because it was the most impactful to me and my realization that I would lead a life like this was, um, was being part of the group, that little group of six or eight people who bought white jeans and black t-shirts and, <laughs> and, and passed out. And that didn't, you know, it wasn't one year. It was like over several years we went in and did that. And we got to see the bars slowly acclimate to the fact that um, we were there. In fact, we had people asking us, we need more condoms. How can I get more condoms? So that became, um, that realization became um, real to me. So I guess the most proud I would, I would say would be that. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, we could go on for hours about all the, all the stuff that you've worked on and accomplished and, and taken part in. Um, and so, I mean, I'm kind of running towards the end of the questions here, but I mean, there's so many more questions we could ask. Um, we talked a little bit about how, I guess, your activism and um, career has changed you. How do you feel you've put yourself into that work? How do I pour myself into it? Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, like what, what have you, uh, what parts of yourself do you think have impacted kind of how you've contributed to the community? Oh my God. I think it's, it, it's just innately part of what I am. Um, I didn't really say, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. It's, it's just um, organically came by. Um, the opportunities I had presented themselves organically. Um, I, I did make some, you know, intentional moves, but um, it was always with someone else, you know, I, let's do this. What do you think about this? And um, one thing I learned through all that is how to work on a team, how to work together. Um, I didn't really realize that was a major part of it, but you have to work together. You have to work as a team, no matter what, you know, as, and so, and when you are with like-minded people, it's easy. <laughs> it's easy to say, you know, y'all always have dissenters, but I, um, that's, you know, I, I have, I have been with like-minded people. Also, I understand the other side. I don't just accept the other side as, you know, whatever they are. I understand them. I understand why they think they, why they think what they do. And I think that's important too. I think right now there are several adults around me who feel a certain way uh, about a certain thing. They say, well, they're all this and they're all that. It's just the same thing. I, I, so what I, what I do is try to understand why they feel the, the way they feel. And so when I'm talking to them, if I have a chance to, I can kind of relate to what they're saying. Although I don't agree, um, 
I can relate to it. I can say um, how um, what they feel is I can understand it, I guess. I don't really understand it. <laughs> I mean, I just want to know how they got to this point. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so you've worked with youth a lot. You have Layla. Is there anything that you would like to tell young people in the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, so when I was um, well into my 30s, after I moved here, I spent a lot of time before that caring what other people think. So I don't mean this in a bad way, but you just can't worry about other people. You have to, it's about what you feel about yourself and you, you feel it in your gut and you feel it when you do something wrong um, and you feel it when you do something right. So I, I think that it's hard to tell a younger person just stop caring what the other people think because Layla's at this point that she cares about what, what everybody thinks of her. And, you know, she's 12. And um, it pains me to think of that. And no matter what I say, um, she goes to school and she falls back in the same thing. She cares about what other people think. What other people think about you is none of your business. And what they do to you, what they um, physically try to do to you through laws and policies, that is something stand up for but you, you really don't have any say over what someone thinks so what they think to themselves is not your business but it's really important to watch the laws watch policies also you know what they say is is also very much um part of what they do um but what they think and also stop worrying about everybody else. I was 35 and I had to physically make myself not be concerned about what other people think of me. Some people, I, you know, I'm not magic, but I think that a lot of people through their whole lives, maybe older people, older people, they don't get, they don't care. <laughs> they don't care what you think of them. Um, and why, why wait until you're that old? Because there's, there's a freedom in that. That's it. That's awesome. That's awesome insight. Um, before we wrap things up, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, no. And I, I will say that I have, I appreciate this opportunity to, to share, um, my journey and, um, I hope it helps. And, um, as I said, as I say this to you, it's kind of, kind of revealing that, um, I get up every day. I put my pants on the same way. I use the bathroom, take a shower. I mean, there's nothing super about me. There's nothing, I mean, everybody can do anything and be an activist. So I, 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 did, I, I did say for a long time, I'm not an activist, I'm not an activist. But in some ways, I think we're all activists. You know, what you're doing right now is a form of activism. So that's it. Well, thank you. This has been a really cool opportunity. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you and to hear about your story. Like I said, I'm, there's so much more I'm sure we could dig into, um, but we appreciate your time today. Uh, once again, this is the LGBTQ plus oral history project. Um, and we really appreciate your time and perspective. 
appreciate it. Bye, guys. Chris, thank you, you so much. Thank that you. Was perfect. Thank you. That was a really, really good interview. Um, I really liked your story and how you said it. It was very good to hear like an activist in our community.